Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 21. It's nice to have your company. If you're a seasoned listener to the show, welcome back. If this is your first time, it's nice to have you on board. My mission on this podcast is to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. Sometimes I talk to impressive leaders who are willing to share with us the story of their development, warts and all. And sometimes I talk to people who are experts in a particular element of leadership. Like in the last episode when I spoke to Sean Callahan about the art and the power of telling stories. My guest in this episode is Dr. Joni Cannell. Joni is the author of a book about parenting, Flying Without a Helicopter, How to Prepare Young People for Work and Life. She is also an organisational consultant and a leadership coach. The conversation you're about to hear resides in the intersection of parenting and leadership. What does parenthood and leadership have in common? How are they different? We talk in depth about modern parenting habits and behaviours and the impact it's having on our kids. We talk about the millennials who are, as we speak, taking a firm grip on the workplace. How do they see the world and why? What should leaders know about them? What are their strengths, their generational quirks? And that brings us, of course, full circle, back to the discussion about parenthood and leadership. If you're a parent or a leader, you're going to love this chat with Joni. If you happen to be both... It's compulsory listening. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Joni Cannell. Dr. Joni Cannell, so nice to have you on the Team Guru podcast. Great. It's great to be here. Joni, I'm so looking forward to our conversation today because you play in an area that has so many points of interest for me and for my listeners. You're the author of a book, Flying Without a Helicopter. I'm really interested to hear a lot more about that. You're an organizational consultant and a leadership coach, and you play in an area that really crosses over in so many different parts of people's lives I'm really interested to get started by talking about the relationship between the role of a leader in an organization and the role of a parent at home. For people who are a parent at home and also in a leadership position at work, what are those crossover skills in their lives? Well, you know, it's actually kind of funny that you ask this question because if you look at a lot of leaders in organizations right now, they are parents. And they're stymied by what's going on with the younger people entering the workplace. And they may be the same age as their own kids. And we're saying, well, wait a minute, you parented these kids, you raised them. Why are you surprised at how they're ending up in the workplace with some of these differences in the generations? But if you look at how people look at leadership and parenthood, I would say some of the similarities are that, yeah, you both have to lead people and help them self-actualize. But kids, you know, they're a lot less rational than people in the workplace, typically. Some people in the workplace aren't as rational as you'd like them to be. But kids, when they're really young, they just come up, they all of a sudden you look over and they've taken off all their clothes or something. And you're just like, 
wait a minute, this is not what I expected. I don't know how to do that. So you're dealing with a lot more uncontrollable situations and having to flex a lot more. Uh, Another thing that you have to do both as a parent and a leader is be able to say no. Being a parent has helped me say no a lot better in the workplace because with kids, you just learn to say no. With adults, you come up with all these excuses and say, well, you know, I don't know if I should do this. And after a while, it gets easier to say no. So I would say that a couple things come up there too. And the last part that I would I would add on there is that the collaborative nature of leadership versus parenthood. Right. I think, yeah, parents are trying to be a lot more collaborative with their kids, which is not necessarily helping their kids. Sometimes you need to be a little bit more authoritative and just say, hey, this is the way it has to happen. But in the workplace, we like to collaborate a lot more because we have more teams and that's the way things are going in leadership. So you probably don't want to be as authoritative in the workplace as you do at home. So those would be some differences. I really like that difference that you pointed out at first that children are often not so rational, whereas hopefully the people that you're working with (laughs) uh, in the workplace, the professionals are rational, no matter what age they are. I can really relate to that. You talked about the the taking off of the clothes. We get a little bit of that at home with our (laughs) nearly three-year-old. One of his favorite things to do at the moment is to rip all the books off the bookshelf. It's um, a massive pain in the neck for me because it takes him about three seconds to do and, and it takes me about 10 minutes to put it all back a couple of times a day. So I really relate to that and it's so true, but I'm really interested in the concept of authentic leadership, you know, that being the, yes. the real person at home, at work, with your friends, within your relationship. So when we talk about the differences and you've done a great job of talking about those differences, is it still fair to say though, that I should be the same leader at work as I am a dad at home? Of course, the context is different. And the people I'm dealing with it different. But in terms of the way that I conduct myself, the things that are important to me, is it fair to say I should still be striving towards that authenticity? Or is that a misnomer? I would say yes. Authenticity is key to building good relationships and being a good leader and staying true to yourself as well. I think a lot of parents try to put on this fake self where they're perfect in front of their kids so that their kids see this perfect role modeling. And when kids grow up not seeing parents make mistakes and have to apologize or get mad from time to time or have these challenges that they're dealing with, then they don't know how to handle that themselves. They don't understand. And so being authentic and realizing that you need to come clean when something has happened and and being able to show who you are, I think, is is extremely important to kids. In the workplace, too, I mean, the, the best leaders that I know are authentic. And part of authenticity is understanding your strengths and your weaknesses and being able to articulate them and not necessarily even apologize for them, but understand them and and share them so that others can learn how to be more effective and also handle you. You mentioned there that it's a habit of parents to present a perfect front to their children and, and to not let them in on the trials and tribulations of adulthood and parenthood and being part of a family. Is that a new trend? Is that something that my parents would have done or is that something that they we're noticing now? Well, I think that it's, it, it's always gone on in certain contexts, maybe some more than others. And today it seems like there's a lot of pressure on us to be perfect people through marketing campaigns, media, 
you know, social media, the Facebook thing, everyone puts up a picture of life is beautiful and wonderful and happy. And, and so I think we are seeing that a lot more today than perhaps we did, but perhaps also kids just didn't spend as much time with their parents to see all the different things that were going on. That's a really interesting point. I, I was listening to a great podcast the other day and they made the point that even though now it's much more common for both parents to work than not, and a, a generation or two ago, it was really common for mum to stay home. But having said that, they say statistically, mums, working mums today, spend more time with their kids than non-working mums a couple of generations ago. That's an amazing stat. And as, yeah. as you say, that they're just seeing a, a lot more of their parents, but they're seeing a lot more of their parents put on this really beautiful Facebook front. Yes, the Facebook front. I like that, David. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm really interested in this idea of, of the facade of the modern world. You know, we can all buy a website. That's really easy. We can pay someone to make it look great and, and we can pay someone to make our one-man band look as though we're this huge corporation. We can massage and manage our LinkedIn profile. We put up the best things that, we, that happen in our lives on Facebook. We never put up the boring stuff or the bad days. We just put up the good stuff and so many other people seem to do that as well. It's as though we're living in the age of the facade and you're telling me that that, that age of the facade is leaking in to the image that we present to our children at home as well. Oh, absolutely. And I can say too that the, the children learn to present a facade of perfectionism and they grow up and they have these resumes that they turn into the workplace and they're just amazing. You look at these resumes and it's just you would think that you're hiring people who are, you know, have 50 years of experience and they're only right out of college or something. And they're really good at putting up that facade. And then the challenge is when they get to the workplace and you find out that they are lacking some skills or experience or that they weren't as highly acclaimed as they presented themselves, then we run into this mismatch of expectations and some dissatisfaction among both parties. Yeah. That's really interesting, Joni. I'm increasingly interested in this age of the facade. And and of course, I've never thought about it, but it, you know, it makes perfect sense that that would leak into the type of resumes we're presenting to the workplace. Now, the millennials who are entering the workforce People who are, as we call them, technology natives, they've grown up on Facebook and all of these places of, of facade, do they just not see a problem with that? It's just perfectly normal to present yourself on paper or electronically in, in a way that completely enhances you beyond reality is for them in their mentality. Because for me, that would feel a little bit dishonest, but in the way that they've experienced life so far, is that just perfectly normal to do that? Well, I think it is. It's increasingly normal. And I think it's in part because they've been praised so much growing up. They've been praised by teachers, by coaches in sports, and they've been praised a lot by parents. There's been a big move to increase self-esteem for younger people. And we try to do that by telling them that they're wonderful and amazing and also trying to avoid them being hurt by having disappointments in life. So they start to believe it. Right. And when they say these things, they might not necessarily see it as inflating themselves. And I think that's a real 
problem when they get into the workplace that they don't really have a grounded view of where their strengths are and way, where they may need to develop some more skills because they haven't gotten that feedback all along. It's such an interesting point that you, you make that they might not see it as being dishonest because they've lived in this age where everyone gets a certificate. It's not okay to give criticism and they get this inflated view of themselves. So the effect is that they don't feel dishonest when they write this resume that, that reads well beyond their actual skill and their actual experience. Yeah. And I would just say our society, at least in, the, in San Diego where I live, it's gone from have a nice day to have a great day to have a beautiful day, right? Right. We're using language now that's just very exaggerated in all ways. So for people to keep using exaggerated language to describe themselves isn't really that different. But I guess what's the answer, though? If everyone in your cohort is doing that, is exaggerating their experience and their skills, you can't put in a very humble, honest resume. You, you'll never get an interview. That is the pushback I often get, you know, and these kind of things is you don't want to be left behind. So, you know, I think that it's a matter of figuring things out. And, and I, I think people see through it, though. I think that's the one thing that a lot of people who are writing these resumes don't understand is people in organizations do see through it. And when they get something that seems a little bit more down to earth, that can surprise them in a positive way. Right. Okay. Yeah. Stand out because of its humility. Right. I like it. All right. Well, let's talk about your book, Flying Without a Helicopter. I haven't read it, but I'm going to guess that the title points us directly to that term, the helicopter parent. Can you tell us a little bit about the title, how you came up with that and, and the theme of the book, what you were trying to achieve? Well, yes, it is about helicopter parenting and it's about trying not to helicopter. And so the book is written for young people who are growing up and trying to live more independently and build their resilience. But it's also written for parents who are realizing that their kids need to fly the nest and be independent one day and, and not have somebody hovering over them. And it also speaks to people in the workplace, to managers who are dealing with people who have been raised that way and are now coping with having to develop their skills as a worker. And the title comes from the idea of flying the nest, but also not having your parent hovering over you to do things for you. And the themes are about realizing the life skills that are necessary to succeed in the workplace. One of the things that seems to have been left by the wayside in this last generation of children is that we've been so focused on preparing them academically that we've forgotten about those life skills, those pesky life skills, just the basics like learning independence, learning how to make mistakes, fall down and pick yourself back up and stay positive, learning how to interact, communicate face to face, learning how to write and be creative and resourceful when you don't have all the things at your fingertips that you're hoping for. So the book is really dealing with some of those skills and how to develop those skills. And it's written for a wide range of audiences to help really focus on the young people, but it can be folks who are educating them, parenting them, or managing them, but also the younger people themselves. So I'm really interested to talk soon about Everything that you just described, the, the helicopter parenting leading to a lack of resilience and life skills, the, the fact that we've been so busy preparing these kids academically that we've forgotten about some of the very practical life skills. I want to talk about how that impacts the millennials, because that's, I guess, who we're talking about at work and socially and in relationships. But first, 
I'm really interested to know why. I mean, we dump all these problems on the millennials. We, we're observing it as they increasingly enter the workforce, but really it's not their fault. It's a change in parenting that's come from late baby boomers and, and young Gen X parents. Why has there been such a change in the way that kids are parented to the point that we're talking about things like helicopter parenting? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. That's going to be leading me to my second book, but I touch on that in a little bit in Flying Without a Helicopter. Well, let's think about what has changed between the generations. And a couple of big things have happened. One of them was 2011, and suddenly people got a lot more scared of bad things happening to kids. And people are a lot more protective of their kids. And the media has changed too. Now we have coverage of things that go on across the globe, right? We see that there's a car chase across the world from us. You know, we're watching these things that probably aren't happening that often, but it makes us have fear. And so as parents, we're a lot more anxious than we were, I think, years back and the generation back. So that's fueling some of this. Another thing is the global competition. We have a lot more people. The millennial generation is a large generation, just like the baby boomer generation was. And we have the same number of slots in colleges and, you know, in the workplace. We have challenge finding places for people there, too. And so we have a lot more people competing for the same things. And parents have become anxious that their kids aren't going to get the opportunities that they want them to have. So I think those are a couple of the things that are driving the shifts in parenting. And there are a lot more, but the anxiety is really the underlying underlying current there, as well as the need for control. That's a really interesting point. I actually, I think way back when you described it, you said 2011, but I think you're referring to 9-11. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> 9-11 happened, yes. 9-11 No, I, I understood perfectly. It's so interesting that that's identified, and I've heard it said before, as a real change in, in society. I mean, I know it was a huge event, but for it to impact the way that we actually parent our children, it's, um, it's quite startling. And, and I guess it wasn't the event itself. It, it was everything that's happened since. And as you say, the the media much more likely on the on the nightly news to be showing all sorts of horrific incidents uh, quite graphically where we're in this perpetual foreign war which like never before brings back home some really graphic footage of bombings and and everything associated with that so you're identifying that anxiety related to i guess the war on terror more than anything else as well as the the super competitiveness of trying to find your way into college in a world that demands a university degree for a professional career. Yeah, well, absolutely. I'd say the war on terror, but also just terrorism in the small ways. I would say the media have contributed a lot to instilling fear in people, even just reporting on small things. I mean, you hear about a fire that took place, you know, in some other part of the world. You hear about earthquakes. You hear about abductions. You hear about all sorts of things. So people are just really scared that something bad's going to happen. But why those generations? My dad was born during the middle of World War II. And I don't think anyone would ever describe his parents or his generation of parents as helicopter parents. They just weren't that way inclined. I know that there would have been a lot less media coverage of that war than what we get today, but 
the reality of that war would have been very in your face. You know, the the mm-hmm. the 19-year-old man next door would probably have gone off to that war. You know, everybody knew young men who went to war. In fact, you know, a lot of people will say they, they knew more young men who went to war than who didn't. We don't have that right. experience now, but we do have that very graphic footage of it on our nightly news. So, so why was this generation of parent so much more susceptible to that helicopter than any other generation before it who have all had their challenges? Well, I think there is another factor here that we need to consider, and this is largely a middle-class problem, not necessarily people who don't have the means to helicopter, right? It's people who have time and money on their hands to spend on their children. And so we helicopter because we can, I think, you know, because we can, we have more time. And I think that also brings up the issue is that we're not in the middle of people around us going off to war and dying and everyone having to pitch in to save the world, we have a lot more time in our hands to worry about smaller things too. And so we turn that into focusing on the children and focusing on, well, how is their grade in algebra this year, you know, as opposed to the big picture. So things like that. All right. That's a really great answer. I I buy into that. World War Two in the 1940s, it really it was very real. And they, they had the mothers to console who'd lost their sons. They had the boy next door to say goodbye to. It was a real emotional effect. They could do things hands-on that actually had an impact on the experience of the war in the community. Now, it's in our face so much, but there's nothing for us to do. So it's almost like we turned it into this first world problem. We've got so much time on our hands and so much more disposable income that we find ways to exercise that energy, I guess. And the way that we've found is to helicopter parent our children. I would agree. That's exactly what I've been trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and you've said it beautifully. I just have this terrible learning tick that when I, when I work out something new, I've got to repeat it to clarify it to myself. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. So let's now look deeply into the kind of effects that has on these young kids when they enter the workforce. We've touched on it a little bit. I want to talk about, let's take it a little bit further than writing dishonest resumes. What happens when dishonest resume writer finds themselves in the workforce? They've said that they've got all these amazing skills and all this deep knowledge. They probably haven't, not to the extent that their resume says. What's their experience when they enter the workforce? Well, we're talking about generation of people who tend to have been raised feeling that they're just spectacular people because they've been praised and they've been given this feedback that they're getting A's and they are getting trophies. And so they show up and they're not getting the same level of feedback in the workplace. And that can be devastating. It can be devastating to suddenly have somebody criticize your work. And a few things are happening. One is people are breaking down, bursting into tears. I have numerous stories of managers who are trying to deliver some constructive criticism and either having complete resistance to it, like, no, that's just not not the case. It's not my fault. Or bursting into tears or just saying they don't like that anymore and they quit. And so we're seeing a lot more of those kind of reactions than we have in the past. And 
it's the kind of thing where people need to learn how to take that and realize that that's the kind of feedback they need to develop into stronger, more capable workers over the long term. You know, back in the early 2000s, in fact, right on 9-11, it was my job interview at a school in Washington, D.C. I spent three years teaching high school in Washington, D.C. I was an English teacher at the time. And mm-hmm. one of the very first memories I have when grading period rolled around was that I was just grading against the uh, the criteria. You guys call them the rubric in the U.S. Yep. And I thought I was just doing a good, honest job. But I soon learned that in reality, the expectation was that everyone would get an A unless they had lost it. So it's almost like you start with an A and unless I could find as a teacher a reason not to give you an A and it had to be a really good one, then everyone just kind of got an A. And that really stands out in my memory. Now, I haven't taught in Australia for a long time. I don't know if it's the same, but coming from Australia to the US where I had that experience, it it really stood out to me. These kids expected to get an A. And it was to do with what you're talking about, the, the competition to get into college. They were all gearing up for this enormously competitive process, knowing that getting into college or not, and the right college at that, would basically make or break their professional career. So the pressure was on them right back from, you know, in grade 10 to get an A in everything. And as a teacher, that was really startling to me. Yep. Oh, I have to agree. I've had that experience myself and I've talked with numerous professors. I have a little story for you if we have a moment that I can share it with you. Absolutely. Yes. Well, this one person that I've worked with, Jim Blackburn, he gave me a story about he was on a committee to help uh, select congressional interns for the Congress, you know, for people who are working in the U.S. And what they did was they had a committee and they would review applications from California schools and send along the interns into Washington, D.C. And then they started getting complaints from the Congress people saying, you know, we're having these basic jobs like the interns have to respond to emails from constituents. We have to have them take notes and go to meetings and cue us in on what happened. And they weren't able to do these skills. They weren't able to write. And so Jim went back with the committee and said, huh, I wonder about our process here. What are we doing wrong? I said, well, let's try to improve it. So they said, well, you know what we should do is get a writing sample from these students to make sure that they have good writing skills before they, we send them along. So they asked each applicant to turn in a paper from school. And they said, well, let's make sure that it's, you know, it's real. So we said, we want one that's been graded by a professor. So they got all the papers in the next round. And of course, everyone turned in papers they got A's on, right? Because they wanted to show that they were good writers. And they went through and read the papers and they found that they were just fraught with errors. Yeah. And they found out, okay, now we know what the problem is. They're getting A's on papers that aren't written correctly, and we're sending them off to Congress <laughs> to be interns. And it was, you know, the issue is that they're not getting the feedback they need early enough on to develop the skills they need to be successful. Now, that skill, I know that's a very small part of what we're talking about, but those basic literacy skills, are they really lacking in the millennials, or is that just a bit of media myth? Oh, Definitely in the communication skills. Yes. I mean, of course we have some that are just fabulous, right? We have millennials are just an amazing group of people. And now there's no denying that. But when it comes to some of the basics, some of the writing skills, now that comes in two reasons. There's the technology. 
I mean, I have complaints. I had somebody just last week telling me about an email that one of their younger workers sent out with text speak in it. Right. It was, how are you with okay. R and U, the letters, you know, and <laughs> writing to a customer. And they're like, no, you can't do that. Yeah. You have to use proper English. And so, you know, the expectations are different from both just this difference in communicating style and using these devices to communicate, but also the writing is not being focused on as much. People are teaching to the test and there's so much focus on test scores as opposed to actual writing and, and thinking. I think that that's been a challenge. So if we're able to identify all of these issues that come from millennials in the way that they're raised, we've talked about why they're raised that way broadly. What could parents do differently? Parents who are in the reality of 2016, they, they have all these, these things that, that are real in their life that we've talked about, the anxiety that comes with really negative news, the worry that comes with the competitive selection process for a limited number of spots at university and college. How can a parent change what they do at home on a practical level? Well, I would suggest a couple different things. First one is this the anxiety is going to be fueling this concern with keeping control over the situation. And I would have to challenge that and say, determine where you can let go and how you can let the kids be independent. And a question to ask yourself is, you know, what can they do and why am I not letting them do it? So first question would be is, you know, why not? You know, let's say you want to let your high schooler go out to a party. You know, is it that you're afraid of uh, yourself, you don't want to let them go, or you're afraid that they just don't have the judgment to do the right thing if this bad situation came up. And so finding out if it's you or them that's stopping it, and then figuring out how to empower them, how to help them make better decisions. You know, if you're talking about a young child, you know, a four-year-old, are you going to let them choose their clothes? You know, how can you empower them to be able to do that rather than just stopping them and doing it for them? And that goes into the second thing, which is, you know, in addition to letting go and letting kids be more independent is stand behind them and coach them rather than ahead of them and protecting them. So coaching them and asking them questions to guide them through the thought process that they need to have to make decisions or to think about planning something and guide them instead of just keeping them out of the equation and doing it for them. So those are the two things that I would say is just pretty much getting out of the way and helping to empower the kids and asking yourself, what can I let them do? And if, if I'm not ready to let them do it yet, how can I empower them to be able to do it when the time is right? And that's a great question to ask yourself. Is the problem with me or is the problem in, with them? Do I doubt their ability to deal with it or is it more about my nerves and that this is as much right. new for me as a parent? as it is for you as a child. Right. And that'll be different for every kid and every parent too. I mean, some kids are just more able to do certain things than other kids, you know, and some kids need a little bit more time or a little bit more on the decision-making skills than others. So judging per child what they can do and working with that, I think, is, is a way to look at it. And what sort of age are we looking at? If we think about our parenthood in stages through from infancy to being a toddler to a a young child, early school to teenage years, how does our parenting evolve through that process? Because I I have a two and a half year old, nearly three. 
I bet I do a lot of this helicopter stuff and there's things that I could let go more of. There's opportunities for me to stand behind and coach rather than to get out in front and actually clear the path for him. But I'm mm-hmm. sure that that becomes even more important as as we progress through the ages. So talk us through a little bit how our parenthood evolves. Oh, that's a great question. Well, absolutely. I think safety is one of the most important things. And if it's grave, you know, if the harm is really dangerous, I mean, you know, with a two-year-old, you do hold their hand to cross the street because if they run out in traffic, they might get killed, right? But when they're a bit older, then you have to figure out when they're able to do these kinds of things on their own and how do they learn to look both ways before they cross the street, that kind of thing. And I think as we evolve for the parenting, it's continuously letting go at every step of the way, letting them be more independent, letting them develop the skills they need to be adults ultimately and live on when without you there to be guiding them as they're as adults. And there are a lot of things you can do there. One of them is helping them learn the skills, like when they're young, helping them learn how to cut their own steak, right? When they get older, you know, it might be helping them make the decision on how, the, if they're going to turn in their homework on time or when they should start doing their homework to make sure it does get done on time or whether they should turn off the TV. So helping through those kinds of decisions. And then, you know, you have to let go sometimes and let the kids do it and make mistakes on their own, right? Because sometimes, you know, if the kid forgets their lunch at school, are you going to go racing in and delivering it for them and teach them that that's how they get their lunch if they forget it? Or let them go hungry for the day and say, hmm, boy, if I do that, it's not a very pleasant afternoon for me. You know, wow, so that's a big call. Yeah. So many parents wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't be able to do that if, you know, he's, he's very young now, but I, I'm betting that even if he gets to school age and he forgets his lunch and it, it is his responsibility, there is no way I could be at work or sit at home knowing he's at, at school hungry. I would be up there with some lunch. Yeah, well... Maybe you should ask yourself if that's you or him, you know? <laughs> oh, you're, you're absolutely right. I, and I know there are flaws there. It's absolutely me. Yeah, you're right. I, it's because I wouldn't be able to stand the feeling of it. Right. I mean, people get hungry all the time. You skip a meal, you run late. I don't know. Things happen. And, and we think that that's just disastrous. And if we realize that, you know, maybe it's, it's not that bad a lesson. I mean, like we talk about safety. I mean, you're not going to let them go without food for a week, right? Mm, but. Yeah you know, for a few hours, you know, these things, it's a matter of letting them suffer some of the consequences and learn a lesson that way. And sometimes we don't want to do that because it's hard and, and we feel that kids are fragile, but they're actually much more resilient than we give them credit for. And they need to learn those skills and, and turn on that resilience to be able to be strong later on in life. There's so much food for thought there as a parent mm-hmm. and as someone who's interested in leadership, because there are, there are things I know, my wife and I talk about all the time, we, we could do better, but we just, we can't bring ourselves to be hard. We're, we're very soft, I guess, when it comes mm-hmm. to parenting. We've got this situation at the moment, he, he loves to run out of his room at night when it's bedtime. You know, he's, so he's in a big boy bed, he's not in a cot anymore, and he can get out of bed and run around and... And we go through this pantomime every night where we say, look, if you come out again, we're going to have to clock, you know, close your door and lock your door. And he doesn't like that. He hates it when we do that. So we just don't do it. And we just keep on saying, yep. okay, one more chance. Now this time, if you come out and we don't do it, it's terrible. We know that we're doing it, but 
I just can't bring myself to do something that upsets him. And I know I'm setting him up for failure there. How can I get over that, that hump? Well, you know, I think, well, there are a lot of things here, but one of those things is realizing that maybe it's not as hard as you think it is. Mm. Because, you know, sometimes you say, no, I remember that happened, something similar with my husband, our daughter, when she was a little little baby, a little toddler, really hated to take a bath and she would cry and he wouldn't bring her into the bath. And so finally one day I said to him, you know, your job is to get her clean and take care of her. It's not to make her happy and all the time, right? And one day he just put her in the bathtub while she was screaming away. And as soon as she got in and realized that there was no choice, she stopped. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he just had to get through that and realize, oh, this actually works. <laughs> and it's not as bad as you think. Sometimes we anticipate things as being a lot harder than they are. That's often true with everything we do. And you mentioned earlier just taking small steps like teaching them to cut their own food, giving them that time. It's so tempting as a parent to think that you're always in a hurry. You know, you've got to get this done because then yep. we've got to go to bath time and then we've got to do this, then we've got to do that. But it takes some discipline to slow down and say, hey, look, the most valuable thing here is is not getting there on time and moving to the next activity. The most valuable thing for my child is that he does learn to put on his own shoes. So it takes 10 minutes. That's fine. Let's go through that process rather than rush, rush to the next thing. Right. And deciding it. Sometimes you just need to rush and do it for them, right? Yeah. Sometimes you don't. And the other thing I think that parents have to do is give themselves a break. We try to be so perfect. There's so many parenting books out there now, so many shows telling us how to do everything and realizing, hey, we're humans too. Sometimes we're going to get mad, you know, sometimes we're going to get frustrated. That's okay. Now, we've given the millennials a bit of a hard time today, but I, I do want to ask and talk about very specifically, what are they good at? So we've talked about all the, the baggage that millennials come with, their lack of resilience, the fact that they've been told they're great at everything, the fact that they get A's for pretty mediocre work in high school. But I'm sure that the way that they've been brought up with technology, the way that they've been brought up in, in what I would say these cultures of kindness have had some really positive impacts on on how they conduct themselves. What what do we look for there when we're talking about the good things about millennials? Well, they're very highly educated. They know a lot about a lot. They are technically savvy and speedy. I mean, boy, you want something done quickly. You want information gathered quickly. They can find it for you before you even finish the question, right? And they're also, like you said, they've grown up in a much more diverse world. And so they're much more open-minded to diversity and leveraging that. And they're much more connected with people all over the world too. Not necessarily in a deeper way, because we're talking about some of the face-to-face communications as being challenging, but certainly connected in a much larger sense. Their networks, I mean, their friends on Facebook are in the thousands, you know, they're connections on LinkedIn and Instagram and other places. I mean, they can gather groups of people to support you for various things or answer questions or gather information, you know, just instantaneously. So those are some things they're really, really good at. So what are your tips for leaders who are looking for ways to overcome those those weaknesses, I guess, that we were talking about earlier? but at the same time, make the most of the strengths that you just described when they're leading millennials? You know, it's funny because this ties us back to the first question you asked me about how are leadership and parenting similar. 
And I would say for leaders, the advice I give in general, but specifically for millennials, is to be a coach and get behind them and help support them and ask them the questions so that they can get through that thought process on planning and decision making without having to keep coming back and ask for directions for things. So building their independence by coaching them with guidance and helping them figure things out rather than doing it for them. Also, letting them make some of these mistakes. You know, you have to start small. You don't want to give them the budget for the year and then have them make a mistake with that. But maybe you can give them a budget for a party or something or, you know, or something small or a, a certain project and have them go through it and learn from that and how to do better next time. So they get used to being more resilient. So those are a couple things. Leveraging some of their skills already is, wow, you know, helping get them involved in projects and especially in packaging of things where they can put them out there for the world to see. They're really good at that. So helping them gather information and connect with people would be ways to leverage some of their skills. Uh, And that's a really nice loop back, as you say, to the beginning of our conversation where we were talking about the link between being a leader and being a parent. So we'll almost end on that. I just have uh, one more question about this idea that millennials will come into the workplace and want to be CEO next week. I'm, uh-huh. I, 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 that's a really harsh appraisal. I'm sure it's not really true on the ground, but what, what is the story there? Is there a kernel of truth in that? Yep. And let me tell you, you know, we're talking about millennials and giving them a hard time. This is where it's parents and teachers really shame on you for letting these kids have these expectations. And I think we've been pumping them up. I mean, millennials, for they've really given up their childhoods in a lot of ways to work so hard to have such structured lives, to have educational opportunities, to work as hard as they can to get these perfect transcripts, to get into these great colleges. They've worked so hard and they expect to see the treasure at the end of the rainbow, yeah. right? They're saying, okay, you know, now this is the workplace. I'm going to have this wonderful job, this great career. It's all worth it. And they get there and then they find out they're right smack at the bottom of the ladder. And the manager is saying, what do you mean? You get to do the lowly work. You know, you have to earn that and you have to have experience before you can do all these, you know, leadership kind of tasks. And there's this huge mismatch of expectations there. And I think one of the things we can do as parents of younger people and as educators is to help them understand how work is difficult, what the drudgery is, what kind of expectations they can have in their first jobs out of school, and how long it takes to move up. So that's something that we can do right now. And as managers, too, if they're already there, we can say, look, these are some of the experiences and the things that that you need to have and help them understand why they're valuable. I guess what you could say in defense of millennials is that they're optimistic, they're ambitious, Mm -hmm. and perhaps you could also credit them for not accepting the drudgery that my generation and the generations Mm -hmm. before me were willing to accept. Maybe the millennials just don't accept that work should be terrible sometimes. Yep, I agree. And there is some shifting in response to that as well. You know, some companies are saying, you know what, we have to come up with enticements to help keep these people on board. Otherwise, we're not going to have a next generation of workers. And so they are coming up with ways to make work more interesting and give people opportunities. But, you know, there's a little bit of both. There's a give and take. 
So what happens to the psychology of a millennial when they do come into the workplace and they they learn the reality that there is drudgery, there is a very steep corporate ladder to climb, and you're not even on the bottom rung yet? How can that affect them? Well, there's a, something you know that we're calling the the quarter life crisis now oh, instead no. of the midlife crisis. Oh, I don't know if you've no. heard that expression yet. I haven't. Right? People are, yeah, they're 25 years old. They're burning out really quickly. They're having a crisis, an existential crisis about what's this all about? What have I been doing all this time? So we have higher rates of young people burning out than ever before. So that's a problem. And that's something we really don't want to happen. That's something that the expectations is a mismatch, but also that they've worked so hard to get there that they need to refuel at some point. So that is one of the reactions. You know, job hopping is another reaction. We see that, you know, if you look at the statistics on that, millennials tend to hold four jobs in their first 10 years out of university, and they're not as interested in hanging around for the drudgery or long-term experience that might be necessary, and they're finding other employers who are willing to hire them with less experience to do different types of work. And then there's also, you know, the people who just get fed up and there's another big trend here in the U.S. especially of uh, the boomerang kids, right? The ones who are moving back home because they're leaving. They're, They're just finding that work is not what they wanted it to be and moving back home and having parents take care of them. So those are some of the negative things that happen. Now that's poetic, isn't it? Because it was the parents and their style that put them in that position in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's why I tell the parents, hey, be careful of what you wish for, for your kids and, and what you train them for. And, you know, Look what you've all created. Of this, yeah, what you've created. And so, you know, we ask about are these mistakes? Is this bad parenting? No, not necessarily. It's just you have to think about the long term consequences of the kinds of experiences you're giving to your kids. And some of them, you know, and the short term, right? You talked about not wanting your kid to be unhappy or, or hungry. But maybe over the long term, that will help him be able to, you know, work through the night if he has to for a job that's super important or something like that. You know, so those are the kind of decisions we have to be making all along and and weighing them. And sometimes we choose one and sometimes we choose the other. Hey, look, it's all really interesting stuff, Joni. The dealing with millennials and thinking about parenting in 2016 is, is interesting enough by itself. But when we link that with leadership in the workplace, and we, we think about the crossovers there, it, it's really intriguing and it's, it's important for us as professionals to think about those crossovers. I really appreciate your time and everything you've, you've talked about today, but you're not off the hook yet. I've got four okay. more questions for you. I, I always ask these questions of my guests so my listeners can learn a little bit more about the inherent journey. Are you ready? They're, they're big questions. Okay. All right, here we go. Question number one, tell me, about the Saturday night you most look forward to, an intimate dinner with your closest friends or a big party with lots of people you know? Oh, boy. I would have to choose the intimate dinner with close friends. I like having conversations and really talking about deep stuff. All right. Very good. Now, what about this one? Are you more likely to get caught daydreaming or bogged down in the detail? Hmm. That, you know, I would have to say probably daydreaming. Right. Okay. Good. Next one. Question number three. Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? You know, I think I used to be a lot more rational, but now I have more intuition. 
But overall, I would say rational. Very good. You know, so many people, when they answer that question, bring intuition into it. It's, it's a really interesting yeah. topic of conversation. That's, that's great stuff. Now, very last question, Joni. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to book the hotels in advance, plan the route, know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? Oh, I'm a planner. Yes, I would plan the, the hotels. I want to have a place to stay and not show up and have it be booked up. I've done that when I was in my 20s and I've had to sleep on the ground and camping because I didn't. there were no hotels You left. don't want the stress of that, hey? Fantastic. Joni Cannell, thank you so much for your time today. It was really nice to have you on the Team Guru podcast. Well, thank you. This has been great questions. And that was Dr. Joni Cannell. I thoroughly enjoyed talking about the relationship between leadership and parenthood and those quirky generational features of the millennials, a group like no other that's come before. They're a product of their times, political uncertainty, ubiquitous technology and educational pressure. They're fast paced. They have high expectations. They're ambitious, creative, impatient. They're the present and they're our future. I'll provide a link to where you can find Joni and her book on the podcast page for this episode. And I will, as always, share the lessons I took from today's chat. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Look for us on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and Stitcher. And keep an eye out for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.